Hey, hey, welcome back to Basecamp. And to this episode, we're going to be diving back into our discussion in systematic theology. Now, today we're going to come to our last episode in discussing the order of salvation. Or as we've been talking about, kind of it's the, the behind-the-scenes look at how we became Christians, right? Like our spiritual birth stories about how God has been planning and working out and securing and applying our salvation throughout, from, from before the foundations of the world, but then throughout time and actually applying it into our lives. And as you've been doing so, I pray it's been really helpful um, to even think about. And now as, as we've been working through God's plan of redemption in the last couple of, of weeks, especially in, in the last episode, we considered God's glorious work to adopt rebellious sinners like us into his family then his plans of sanctifying us and then persevering us to the end and the great assurance that we have that he will finish this good work that he started in us. Well, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the last two parts of that, about death and glorification. And it's amazing if we think about it, that humans have a 100% mortality rate. We're all going to die, right? (laughs) Unless Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom here on the earth during our lifetime. And even our deaths are part of God's glorious plans as we will shed our old bodies, taking them off like dirty old clothes so that we might put on our new selves and be freed from sin forevermore as we are in paradise with our Savior in the place where he has gone to prepare for us. So, with no further ado, let's dive in. Now, every day we are bombarded with the news, whether it's newspapers or TV things or social media, whatever. We always hear from one side of the aisle or another that there are various enemies running around trying to do their worst to destroy the fabric of society. Now, some of these enemies are the boogeyman. They're made up for various talking points, but some are very real. Well, as Christians, we have a real enemy. And the last great enemy that we'll face is not terrorism or a political regime or those bent on destroying freedoms that are protected by the charter. No, our our last great enemy, according to the Bible, is death itself. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, but increasingly our culture views death not as an enemy, but as a welcomed friend, maybe even as a final hope. It was for one such a individual here in Winnipeg just a few months ago as the first ever in church, like in a church building, in a church service, assisted suicide in all of Canada happened right here in Winnipeg. It occurred as this individual chose death over the trials of life. We're seeing more and more of this with maids, right? Medical assisted uh, death, right? Whether we're talking about that with physician-assisted suicide, or 50 million aborted babies, or even more during the time when uh, Roe v. Wade was in place in the States, or I, I, I can't even think about the number of hundreds of thousands or millions of babies here in Canada as well that have been murdered, that have been killed. You know, think about that. Death is in many respects in our culture, something that is welcomed, not feared, cherished as a woman's right, not abhorred. 
you know, in our, in our culture, there is there's this calloused way of viewing the death of whomever they consider to be enemies or those who are in the way or inconvenient as a welcome respite. But the Bible, it presents a different view of death. It's not a passing away and passing on. It's, it's not sailing blissfully off into the sunset. No, no, Scripture makes clear that death is a curse. We see that in Genesis 3.19. It, it's a direct consequence and punishment of human sin. The wages of sin, what we earn because of our sin, is death, Romans 6.23. And all die because all have sinned, Romans 5.12. That's why I have physical death. Death is not natural. It's not peaceful. It's, it's tragic and it's terrifying. I've been in the room at two different deaths, and it's tragic and terrifying. Walking through our miscarriage a couple of months ago, it's, it's tragic and terrifying. Death, it, it reflects God's, God's judgment of sin that touches every single human life. There's nothing romantic or, or glorious, special, exciting, exhilarating about death in the Bible. It's so horrible that even the one who would triumph over it was overcome with grief and anger at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Remember Jesus in John 11? Death was not Lazarus' friendly deliverer or a portal to a better life. Now, looking death in the eye, Jesus saw, he saw it for what it really was. Terrible, unnatural, the punishment, the judgment of God on all of human life. And, and the reason that, that we as Christians don't mourn as those who have no hope is not because we know that death is good, but because we know that God's love and life are more powerful than the jaws of death. You can look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13 for more on that. So that we feel its bite, Christ has removed the sting of death, and we, we take hope in that, 1 Corinthians 15.54-57. So, as those who have hope as Christians, we should consider what happens when we die In, in the last couple of years, there's been this really weird, popular and profitable market of like, it's called like the heavenly tourism genre books, right? Like books like Heaven is for Real that came out, right? You speak of people who die and go to heaven and then come back and they tell us about all these things about it. Let me be clear about that. The things that those books say are not true. They're not true. They're fantastical. They're desires of what people hope to be true, but they're not true. As Jesus said, God's word is true, John 17, 17. And the Bible gives us the precious little details about the state that we are in between death and heaven or what's known as the intermediate state, which is the first, the first thing that we, we, we know that when we die, we go to this intermediate state of where we're this disembodied, bizarre, weird state. It's this freaky thing, right? Like we, we die, our bodies stay here, but then we're, we're, we're with the Lord in paradise, but we're disembodied. 
we're longing for the day where where Christ will come and then we will return back to a, a new body, but somehow it's our old body that's made new. So we're in this intermediate disembodied state is what we're going to. It's this unnatural, weird, bizarre time. <laughs> and, and, and most of what the Bible says, though, on heaven refers to the everlasting state, like after the final resurrection. It, it doesn't say a whole lot about that intermediate state, what happens between death and the final resurrection, that disembodied state. But on the on the intermediate state, the scriptures do say that when we die, our souls and bodies separate as they await the final reunion in the new heavens and the new earth. So, so we're not simply in some suspended contemplative space, nor are we lost souls wandering through the shadows or crossing crossing back and forth on the river stinks. Right? Nor are we just soul sleeping. No, we know. Because of the Bible. <laughs> Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. So when we die, we are made part of the true Zion alongside innumerable angels in the festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, like it says in Hebrews 12, 22 to 23. Not only that, but we know that Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's, there's, there's somewhere that you're going. You're in this strange disembodied state, but you're, you're somewhere. You're, you're, you're alive. You're conscious. You're with Christ. Brothers and sisters, I, this is kind of this weird, incredible, bizarre thing that we see too right there in Hebrews 12, 22 to 23. It's this strange thing, but an incredible thing to think that when we die, we'll be alongside countless angels at some kind of party in heaven. We'll be in paradise. Do you ever, do you ever sort of consider that? to think about it. It's such a wild thing, being absent from the body and with the Lord. But I, I do want to take a second, because some people have taken the Bible's image of sleep, which is a reference to death, as supporting some kind of a soul sleep. Which I mentioned that a second ago. According to that view, some people say, uh, Christians are in, in a suspended state of unconsciousness until the final judgment. If you want a fun word of the day, I don't know if you did, but a fun word of the day. You can, uh, it, well, here it is. It's called psychopanischism. I, I don't even know if I said that word correctly. It, it has to do with the soul and then the abbreviations of all and night. Now, a fun theological fact for the day. John Calvin wrote his very first theological tract against this view. <laughs> Isn't that... A, Fun fact of the day, uh, if you're like, oh, soul sleep is real, John Calvin said, no, it's not. Uh, this is the very first tract that he did, it, it, because the Bible speaks of the intermediate state as a conscious existence, not a sleepy one. There's not a soul sleep. You just have a long dirt nap. No, I mean, consider what Jesus says. Today you'll be with me in paradise, Luke 23, 43. And praise God that when we die, we don't just enter some kind of ethereal coma. No, we enter into the presence of Jesus. However, others have suggested that the intermediate state affords all the opportunity of kind of post-mortem salvation, or in other words, that we can be saved after we die. That, that when we die, we then have an opportunity to stand before Christ, and then we have the kind of a last chance. So we die, we have a last chance, and then we either go to heaven or hell. This view is especially attractive for those who want to say everyone must repent and believe in order to be saved, and yet they want a way for people to be saved, though they have never heard of Christ in this life. So, so if you think about the parable of the rich man, Luke 16, 19 to 31, 
we know that there's no second chance. There's no post-mortem opportunity for that rich man who rejected God. And of course, no one is condemned merely for consciously rejecting Christ. Rather, all of us are condemned and lost because of conscious, willful sin. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in considering Romans chapters, uh, chapter 1, of how even if there's, uh, in, in creation itself, we, we can see things about God, but we so, we so suppress anything that we can and, and find God's for ourselves because we hate anything that we see to be true about God. Paul says in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, in other words, our our problem is not fundamentally that we don't know about Jesus, the name of Jesus, yet. The problem is that we have consciously and willfully sinned and deserve God's wrath and have suppressed anything that we could know about God, choosing to go our own way and wanting to worship anything but God. It is a wrath that we will face in the next life if we don't turn to Jesus in this life. This life is the only chance that we have. That's why we should be so urgent to share the good news with people. This is why my prayer for us as a church is that God would even raise up people from our church to be sent out as church planters and missionaries. This is why we're doing our Christmas missions offering. It's Hebrews 9.27 that says it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This means that the idea of purgatory is just not consistent with the intermediate state. Purgatory, of course, is that Roman Catholic doctrine, right, which, which teaches that though Christ has forgiven the guilt of sin, the punishment for sins must be suffered before one can be fully cleansed and entered into heaven. All right, so purgatory is kind of a place of purification and preparation. Now, the, the duration and the intensity of those sufferings is determined by how many sins you've done, so try to be better in life, right? So, so your stay in purgatory can be lessened by prayers uh, by good works or by giving to the mass, having people do mass in front of you. In fact, Matt and I, uh, Matt Wood Mass and I, we were in Montreal a couple of weeks ago visiting our church planter there, and uh, and we were walking around this one this one church. And there's a little box that says for the pur- for the souls that are in purgatory, you can give money for souls that are in purgatory. I was like, what in the world? This is still happening? I had zero idea, you guys. It's wild. And the Pope actually has jurisdiction over purgatory, meaning any indulgence or money given to the church on behalf of the dead can lighten your sufferings or eliminate them altogether. So the sale of indulgences is still going on in the Catholic Church. This is their doctrine. And this abuse of Scripture is what led to Luther's 95 Thesis and spurred the Reformation in the first place. And to be clear, there is no scriptural warrant for purgatory at all. In fact, the best that the Church of Rome could do is point to 2 Maccabees uh, 12, uh, 42-45, which itself is not canonical. By that I mean it's not in the Bible, nor does it even clearly teach that doctrine. Therefore, there is no point in praying for the dead, much less purchasing indulgences or expending efforts to secure an early release of the departed from the punishments of purgatory. Lastly, the the intermediate state, what we go to, it it rejects the very notion of annihilationism. Now, annihilationism has become this massive thing in and around our city. It's wild. In fact, a lot of the hip, cool, really awesome, Instagram cool, chic little churches. This is what they teach and preach like crazy. It's like hotcakes, man. It's going fast. 
if you're newer to the idea, annihilationism is the idea with that if anyone dies in unbelief, um, then they are annihilated, body and soul, just completely destroyed. Whereas Christians eternally exist with the Lord. Let me say that again. So annihilationism, the idea that those who are in unbelief, unbelievers, non-Christians, when they die, they are just annihilated. Body and soul completely destroyed. Christians, however, eternally exist with the Lord. So just so you're tracking with me, uh, annihilationism is supported by groups like Seventh-day Adventists, um, but also some prominent British evangelicals like C.S. Lewis and Stott. But it is not supported by Scripture. So, so even though some prominent British evangelical, even people that I, I like reading certain things that they do, like C.S. Lewis, I love the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, and Stott, I love reading different things from Stott. I've even quoted Stott on various things. But, but this view is not supported by Scripture. It's, it's dangerous, and actually it is, it is against the teachings of Scripture. We know this from the Old Testament so Daniel, Daniel 12.2, talks about how sinners and saints will continue to exist forever, which is important because it teaches us to care for people because we know they're going to exist forever. And we want them to exist in God's joy, not under his, under his wrath. So, right? so, so when we're dealing with someone, especially with someone difficult, maybe someone we don't really like, just, just remember this is a, this is a person. They're right. There might very well be eternal ramifications for our dealing with them. And this fact, brothers and sisters, that people will last forever is why one of the most loving things that Jesus ever did was not merely, uh, not merely talk about eternal life, but also he talked about eternal punishment. See that in Matthew 25, 46, for example. And we also know from the mouth of Jesus that the fires of hell are eternal and unquenchable. Matthew 3, 12, 18, 8, and 25, 41. If, if anyone comes at you and talks about how Jesus never talked about hell being an eternal future conscious state, you can simply rest assured they have not read the Bible that well. Or they've just intentionally are so clouded by worldly ways of thinking that they are, they're reading and they're just not comprehending. They're bringing what they view into their reading of the Bible instead of just letting the Bible just clearly speak for itself. In love, Jesus clearly talked about it. And the references are, are all over the place. I'll throw some actually in the, in the show notes as well. So brothers and sisters, this is incredibly important as well if we think about the, what Christ has paid. We have uh, so many clear references of of eternal life and eternal death being in the same verses. So, so we cannot say the same words, eternal life and eternal death. Oh, it's different eternalities. There's an eternal life for us, a future eternal state, yes, but there's not a future eternal punishment. If so, that means there's no future eternal life for us. You see, it's like it's like you want to, it's, like, it's like you want to, to stand on the rug that you're pulling yourself out from underneath. It's, it's just ludicrous. It's just, it's wild. And, and it just blatantly goes in the face of everything that we see in Scripture. And everything that John warns us about in the book of Revelation of the lake of fire that awaits us. And, and it, so it, 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 
mitigates it, lessens what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It says, well, he didn't take an eternity of sin for you. Because really, if you didn't believe in Christ, you're just going to be annihilated anyway. So it's not really that important. So you, you, you mitigate, you lessen what Jesus does on the cross. You lessen Jesus's own words. You lessen what scripture says because you view what you think as more important than what scripture very clearly says. And not only that, but why share the gospel with anyone at all? If they are simply going to die and be annihilated, body and soul gone forever, why share the gospel with anyone? It's kind of pointless. <laughs> if they're not going to go spend eternity suffering under the righteous wrath of God the Father, then why share with anyone? There's no point. There's no point in missions, there's no point in preaching. There's no point in gathering as a church. It just doesn't even matter. Just don't even go to church then. Just go watch football games. Go to the park. Go skiing. Don't. Everything that we do makes no sense. Brothers and sisters, it, it's ridiculous. And it's wild. I could talk about this forever. I will not. I'm going to move on. This is, so though, <laughs> though, death, though death is the last great enemy, what we know is that Christ has conquered death. Thus, the Christian can face death, not in fear, but with the hope that death won't have the last word. See, death is shocking and it is terrible. There's, there's a reason why Paul says, death, where is your victory and where is your sting? It's because there, there is a sting, has a temporary victory over us, but it doesn't get the actual one. For we know to live as Christ and die actually is gain, Philippians 1.21. So let's, let's move on. That's uh, the next thing, major thing we're going to talk about, glorification. Now, believe it or not, going to heaven when we die is not our final hope, this intermediate disembodied state, right? We, we, we don't just want to be in that intermediate state, we want to be in the final state. That final state is glorification. Glorification is the final hope of the Christian. It's that final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites us with our souls and changes the body of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. And this is the big one, the final step. At that moment, we'll be completely redeemed, completely free from death and sin, and free purely to praise God in his very presence. We will be perfected at last. And so if you're, if you're going to choose a text to meditate on glorification, all you have to do is turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This is a really great one. In it, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, though, you might wonder, well, how do our bodies change and become glorified when they're six feet underground and probably eaten by worms? Well, you probably weren't wondering that last bit, but that's probably true. No, that's, that's likely the question that Paul's responding to in 1 Corinthians. He answers it by using the analogy of a seed that needs to be buried in order to become the plant it was made to be. 
while not conclusive, it's suggestive that there will be some form of continuity with our old bodies once they become glorified. So, so if I die tomorrow, you might wonder, well, will I have whatever year I died in? Will I have that year old body in heaven? Like right now, I'm 35, so if I were to die tomorrow, will I have a 35-year-old body in heaven? I don't know. Uh, I, have, I have zero idea. Scripture simply tells us that our bodies will be like Christ's. Uh, Philippians 3.21 says that Christ will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body, like his resurrection body. Now, notice again in that we can take no credit. Christ is the actor in that sentence, right? He's the one who's transforming our bodies. So to be clear, glorification applies to our physical bodies. Paul says the body that is sown is perishable but is raised imperishable. It cannot die at all. It is completely of a different kind and order and sort. Now, this means our, our bodies will be like Christ's current body, his resurrection body, not because we'll look like him, but because our bodies will not wear out. They will not grow old. We cannot get sick anymore. There's no more cancer. We cannot obtain injury. Revelation 21, 3 to 5. That's why scriptures say that when we see Jesus, we shall be like him, 1 John 3, 2. Where our glorified bodies will be perfected. We can rejoice that our new bodies will be made in Christ's image as he originally intended it, being conformed to the likeness of Christ. And that will be a great day. I was uh, hearing from Joni uh, Erickson Tata the other day, and she was talking about how when she um, dies, I don't know if you know Joni's story or not, um, she's a paraplegic, she's in a, in a wheelchair, and she's in a lot of pain constantly. And she was talking about when she dies and how she can't wait to have a new body. And she was talking about how much she hates her wheelchair and she can't wait to be rid of it. And she said one day when she stands there at the right hand of, the, of Jesus in her new body, she's going to ask him if she can throw her wheelchair to the pit of hell because she hates it so much. <laughs> and, uh, and that's the Christian's great joy and hope, right? Is that one day everything that's broken and sad will one day be not true. We long for a day where there's no more Parkinson's. There's there's no more there's no more dementia. There's 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 no more Alzheimer's. There's no more broken bones and bodies. Everything that's broken will be made right. We will all be reformed. We will all have new resurrection bodies. And and I I wonder. I wonder if we, I wonder if we think about that enough. I wonder if we, if we have this this eager hope, this expectation for Christ's return. I wonder if that's something we think about often. When we put off our clothes and take showers and put on new ones, do we, do we think about how one day we will lay aside this body and put on a new resurrection body? Everything will be different. Everything will be better. We won't need glasses and contacts. We have Raynaud's disease any longer. Life, everything will be drastically different. I want to conclude today just by, by asking, are there specific times in life that have caused you to desire heaven more? And, and, and what, are, what are some of those things in your life? And wouldn't it be 
It'll be a beautiful, beautiful day when we will finally be able to, as Peter says, set aside this body of death. Just cast it aside to put on that which is coming. Oh, Maybe long for that more and more. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of Base Camp. Um, I, I want to really thank Capitol Hill again for letting us use materials like this in order to disciple our church. Now, I pray that in thinking through both our death and our future glorification, this has been an encouraging time for you. There have been things to consider and think about, even study and dive into deeper. And uh, and, and I pray that that's true, that we may continue to be a, a church that that is just renewed in our minds, that we're putting off the old and putting on the new and longing for the day when, when that will be true. Hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll catch you next time here in this camp.